Hello and welcome to the death of the Roman Republic. Chapter 2 The Game Last episode, we examined the Roman Republic's expansion from a city in Italy to dominating the whole Italian peninsula. After establishing control over Italy, Rome went on to conquer parts of Spain, southern France, northern Africa, Greece, Macedon, part of Turkey. Whoa, just take it easy, man. Uh, it was a lot. It was really extra. We saw that Rome forced its defeated enemies into alliances in which Rome controlled them. These alliances gave the Republic much more manpower to fight with. In this episode, we're going to see how the Roman Republic operated at this time. Our essential question to keep in mind throughout the episode is what motivated Romans to keep conquering their neighbors and expand in size, and how would this motivation lead to instability? Let's talk about how the Republic functioned. Citizens of the Republic would gather every year in the city of Rome to vote for the new magistrates. Magistrates were positions or offices in government. You'll remember from episode 1, Romans hated kings, and hated the idea of one man ruling over them. So, it was not one president or one prime minister leading the republic as the top magistrates, but rather two top spots. Two consuls with equal power would lead the republic. This is getting out of hand. Now there are two of them. Consuls led Roman armies, could propose laws, veto each other, and in general, held the most sway. The consulship was the most prestigious and most sought-after magistrate in the Republic. In the hierarchy of magistrates, below the two consuls were six praetors. Praetors held moderate authority, formally served as judges, and sometimes led armies in war. There were also ten tribunes elected each year. A tribune's goal was to protect the average Roman citizen and might propose laws that would help them. Importantly, tribunes also had the power to veto, so they could protect that average Roman citizen. For example, if a consul's actions were going to hurt Romans, a tribune veto would prevent it. Tribunes were sacrosanct, no touching, and it would be a religious offense to harm them. All the magistrates served for just one year, so no one could hold power and dominate the Republic. The Senate of the Republic was not elected, but made up of magistrates and former magistrates. Senators were advisors to the Republic, and it was necessary to have their support to do anything. For example, if a consul wanted to pass a law, he would need the support of the majority of the Senate. There were about 300 senators, who were former consuls, praetors, tribunes, and other magistrates. Roman senators also came from Rome's richest class, although some senators were far richer than others. Since senators weren't elected, they could serve in the Senate for life. They would be kicked out, however, if they lost the wealth necessary to be a senator. If there was a state of emergency, the Republic might declare a dictator. This occurred when Hannibal of Carthage devoured three Roman armies, and the Republic needed one man to lead. The concern was two equal consuls would disagree and obstruct each other's plans to save the Republic. The dictatorship essentially gave a Roman the power of a king to do whatever he needed to protect Rome, and no one could veto him. The dictatorship was supposed to be temporary as well, once the crisis was over, the dictator was to lay down his powers so the consuls could lead again. To be a consul, praetor, tribune, senator, or any other magistrate in the Republic, wealth was a high barrier to entry. It was very expensive to run for office, and if you lost, you could be left broke with no chance to run again. 
In essence, it was only the rich that could afford to run for office. This meant, generation after generation, Rome's leaders came from the same rich families. It was rare for a man without an aristocratic pedigree to break into politics on his own merit. The Roman Republic was not like modern governments today, where more average citizens have a chance to run and win office. The Republic was controlled by the rich and powerful. Thus, the Republic was not designed to serve the will of the people, but the will of the rich and powerful upper class who ran it. So what were the goals of the Roman upper class? Since they controlled the government, what did they do with that power? Well, they competed with each other. That sounds really weird to us today, but the driving theme of the Republic was competition between politicians. Competition is something you'll want to keep in mind throughout the rest of the series. Roman politicians competed in a great game. That game, that competition, was to prove they were the greatest politician of their day. They wanted to say, I am the richest, I am the most celebrated by the people, I've done more for the Republic than anyone else alive, and most importantly, I am better than you. There were no political parties in Rome. There might be short-term alliances here and there, but ultimately, it was every man for himself, trying to win prestige and respect for him and his family. What Roman politicians competed for was to have the greatest auctoritas of their day. Translated to English, auctoritas means authority, yet means so much more. This is a copy-pasted definition from Wikipedia, but it is legit. Actoritas referred to the general level of prestige a person had in Roman society, and as a consequence, his clout, influence, and ability to rally support around his will, and symbolized the mysterious power of command of heroic Roman figures. Actoritas benefited one's family as well. If you came from a famous family that had a lot of prestige and respect, you were more likely to be elected. Actoritas was political capital. Politicians and their families competed generation after generation for greater actoritas and prestige than their peers. If you were a Roman politician, to gain greater actoritas, admiration, and respect from Romans, you had to serve the Republic. You had to demonstrate your value. For the Romans, the most expedient way to demonstrate one's value was to win a war. And indeed, what better way to serve the Republic than to conquer an enemy who threatened it? What better way to serve than to plunder enemy lands and use that money to build temples, bathhouses, aqueducts, and other structures that would serve the Roman people and remind them of your greatness. Indeed, what was a better way to prove how much better you were than win a war? Clearly, the Roman upper class who ran the government had a lot to gain by waging war. But why did average Romans partake? Not every soldier would make it out uninjured and alive. Well, Rome was a product of its time. It was not surrounded by pacifist communities in the Italian countryside on a tranquil Mediterranean sea. Greek states had been prone to expansion for some time, especially after driving the Persians out. You'll remember Roman territory was invaded by King Pyrrhus and later Hannibal of Carthage, so to survive in a land of wolves, Romans would have to be wolves themselves. Average Romans believed war and violence was necessary for their safety and given the world around them, you can understand why they thought so. Besides this, the Roman soldier who went to war would make a pretty penny. While the commanding general would get the lion's share of the wealth, he shared the spoils of war with his loyal soldiers. That is correct. Soldiers were not being paid by the Republic, but by the man who led them. A soldier's loyalty ultimately wasn't tied to the Republic, but his general, or at least his general's money. This is something you'll want to keep in mind throughout the rest of the series. A charismatic general, who pays his soldiers well, will create an army loyal to him, not the Republic. 
while we haven't seen a general go renegade with a private army, be sure examples are coming. So, politicians went to war because they gained money in Actoritas. Average Romans fought because it would secure the Republic's safety and they would make some money. However, becoming a gigantic territory that surrounded the Mediterranean Sea was not a long-term goal of any politician. Generations of Romans had short-term goals that served the Republic's immediate interest and the individuals who wanted the fame and riches of war. Over centuries, Rome expanded piece by piece until it wound up on three continents. Let's look at a few examples of Roman expansion. From the Second Punic War, in which Rome was attacked by the Carthaginian Hannibal, Rome conquered Carthaginian territory in Spain. To get to Spain, Rome conquered land in southern France as a convenience. Then, Rome went to war against King Philip V of Macedon as revenge for his support of Hannibal. Roman didn't acquire any Macedonian territory from this, just put King Philip in his place and began Roman influence in the eastern Mediterranean. A few years later, King Philip's son Perseus began to restore Macedonian influence in Greece, intentionally detracting from Rome's. Determined to be a security risk, Rome once again mobilized to put a Macedonian king in his place and was victorious once more. Then 20 years later, a dude named Andriscus, claiming to be the son of Perseus, once again brought Macedon to war with Rome. How many times do we have to teach you this lesson, old man? Rome crushed Andriscus and his rebellion, and Macedon, now an official problem area for the Republic, became a province under the direct rule of a Roman governor. So from these examples, we see Rome expanded because it was convenient, or out of revenge, or to prevent further action by an enemy. In all these wars, victorious generals would have been made richer and more famous, and average Romans would have enjoyed the spoils of war as well. Romans of all classes had a lot to gain in warfare. However, some of Rome's practices and war and conquest would severely damage it later on. As the Republic's territories grew larger, generals were sometimes given an extended command. While consuls were to be switched out every year, if leadership was switched in a high-stakes campaign, its success could be jeopardized. The further a general was from Rome, the longer his extension of command tended to be. With geographic distance also came a lack of oversight. The Republic's ability to control its generals was slowly diminishing over time. During Rome's war with King Philip V of Macedon, General Titus Quinticus Flaminius was ordered to defeat the Macedonian king. Flaminius was victorious, but before returning to Rome, he made another war. Flaminius helped his allies, the Greek Achaeans, destroy their rivals, the Spartans. Flaminius didn't clear these actions with the Senate beforehand and left without looking. Rome was losing its grip on ambitious generals. As discussed last episode, Conquered peoples entered into a bilateral treaty with Rome. While they used to be enemies, they were now allies. In times of war and conflict, Rome's allies would arrive. We come to honor that allegiance. Of course, while they were allied to the Republic, they were under the Republic. They would have Rome's protection, and they would help protect Rome, yet the people in these alliances were not made Roman citizens, but citizens without a vote. The Romans did this because they didn't want other peoples to have a direct voice and influence or to elect their own leaders to the Republic. Remember, the Republic was ran by the upper class for the upper class. It was simpler to maintain their power by not sharing it with anyone. Latins couldn't elect a Latin leader to government, Spaniards couldn't elect a Spaniard, Greeks couldn't elect a Greek, and so on. Average Roman citizens also didn't want Latins, Spaniards, Greeks, or anyone else to have special voting privileges. Conquered peoples couldn't even vote for Romans who they thought would serve their interests. 
So what was Rome's policy for ruling over conquered peoples? The Republic's solution was simple. After the two consuls and six praetors' year in office was over, they had the opportunity to serve as a governor of Rome's many provinces. Governors were essentially dictators of their province. While Romans hated the idea of being ruled by a tyrannical monarch and could only tolerate a dictatorship on themselves for a short period of time, they didn't have much of a problem being dictators to others. You either die a hero or you live long enough to see yourself become the villain. Governors answered to no one and would only face legal retribution for any abuses of power when they returned to Rome. To compare this to American history, the U.S. government expanded with U.S. territory. Citizens in new states had the right to vote, could vote for president, and could vote people into Congress to represent their interests. But if America's policy was like the Roman Republic's, only the original 13 colonies would get to vote for president and members of Congress. Those in other states would not get to vote, but would be ruled over by dictators from the 13 colonies. Doesn't sound terribly fair, but the Roman Republic in all its wisdom said, I'm here to tell you right now, we don't care. Let me tell, right, let me tell you, <laughs> we don't care. Roman governors made sure their inhabitants paid their taxes and that there was peace in their province. Governors would listen to the grievances of their people and solve them if they thought it necessary. So long as this status quo was kept, Rome didn't mind if governors engaged in a little corruption and made a little extra cash. It's like they say, Always money in the Many governors would be brought to trial for corruption, and relatively few would ever face consequences. In such trials, juries were made out of rich senators, who were unlikely to turn on a fellow aristocrat when they probably would have done the same thing. After all, why should you go to jail for a crime someone else noticed? Adrian Goldsworthy loves sharing this account on his books in Roman history. Gaius Varus, a governor of Sicily, once said, A man needed three years in office as governor. The first to pay off his debts, the second to make himself rich, and the third to gather the funds to bribe the judge and jury at the inevitable trial for corruption when he returned to Rome. Citizens without votes had hardly any protection against corruption. Unless they could convince a wealthy Roman to bring their greedy governor to trial, there would be no justice. For the lucky communities that were wealthy enough, they could pay enough to make the problem go away or meet the governor's demands, but many were left vulnerable to abuse. Of course, an over-greedy governor could push his province into rebellion. As governors were charged with keeping peace, rebellion did not reflect well, especially if that rebellion went poorly for Rome. Governors did have a fine line in how much they could squeeze out of their province. Our essential question to keep in mind throughout this episode was, what motivated Romans to keep conquering their neighbors and expand in size? And how would this motivation lead to instability? Go ahead and pause if you'd like to reflect on your answer. Romans embraced the violence in their world, and all levels of Roman society stood to gain from a successful war. Soldiers would make a handsome paycheck by their generals, but the Roman upper class benefited most of all. Politics was like a great game to the Roman upper class, who competed for greater actoritas and gained actoritas in service to the Republic. In this case, politicians served the Republic by defeating its enemies. It was rich politicians who increased their actoritas as victorious generals who pocketed the most money from conquered territories and who became governors that could exploit their province with basically no punishments. The Republic was ran by the rich and powerful, for the rich and powerful. As far as what made the Republic unstable, Roman soldiers, paid by their generals, had the potential to become more loyal to their general than the Republic. 
Additionally, Roman politicians constantly tried to one-up each other, and would take more drastic actions to stand out from the crowd. As the Republic's territory inflated in size, it hardly increased the size of the Republic's magistrates to fairly oversee the provinces, and instead just kept making dictatorial governors. If we copied and pasted this system to the modern United States, the original 13 colonies could vote for the richest Americans to run the government, and every other state would be run by 37 governors who are probably going to exploit their state. If you worry that the power to affect your country's politics is not in the hands of the people, but a small, at least a little corrupt minority, that was the Roman Republic. For the upper class, life was an endless, high-stakes game. The Republic was a feedback loop. Only the richest, most powerful Romans could afford to play it, and the Republic would ultimately first serve the interests of the rich and powerful at the expense of everyone else. As unstable a system as this may seem, the Roman upper class kept it going for a few hundred years. So long as everyone reasonably played by the rules, everyone would get a chance to shine. Consuls, praetors, and tribunes changed every year so no one would become too powerful. Every year, new politicians would earn the opportunity to serve the Republic, make a name for themselves, and gain octoritas. The last thing to keep in mind this episode, and for the rest of the series, is that the easiest way to understand the motivations of the Romans we will meet is to assume the worst of them. In their pursuit of actoritas, wealth, and power, they will take extreme actions to increase their celebrity, and extreme actions to tear down their competitors. Next week, we will meet the brothers Tiberius Sempronius Gracchus and Gaius Sempronius Gracchus. The Gracchi brothers were not going to play this game as it had traditionally been played. They were not going to gain influence, respect, and actoritas by keeping with the status quo, supporting their fellow aristocrats, and going to war. The Gracchi brothers were going to try to help the downtrodden. In trying to help the downtrodden, in trying to change the game and put the power of the Republic in the hands of the people, we begin the death of the Roman Republic. You can follow the show on Twitter at DOTRRPod for additional information and with visual guides to concepts talked about this episode. There's also Roman history memes, updates, and other random stuff. Feel free to tweet Roman history memes at the show. That's DOTRRPod on Twitter. Come for the facts, stay for the fun. Feel free to subscribe and rate and review the show on platforms like Apple Podcasts. If you'd like to contact the show via email, you can email dotrrpod at gmail.com. That's dotrrpod at gmail.com to contact the show. Thank you for listening. All that said, friends, Romans, countrymen, I hope you enjoyed the show. (laughs) 